0: I'm still considered to be not just a convicted terrorist, but also um, someone who is on the run, a fugitive from from Egyptian authorities, which is a bit of a problem um, for me, particularly when it comes to travelling. The fact is that that still remains hanging over my head.
1: Peter Greste was just doing his job. It was Christmas 2013, and he was working for Al Jazeera English in Egypt. Overnight and out of the blue, Peter, along with his colleagues Bahar Mohammed and Mohammed Fahmy, found themselves locked up with no idea how long they'd be in prison simply for reporting the news. This is In Their Own Words, a podcast series from Amnesty International where human rights heroes tell their incredible stories for themselves. Today we hear from journalist Peter Grester.
0: I was a correspondent for Al Jazeera, based in East Africa, based in Nairobi. And they asked me to go to Egypt, to Cairo, just to cover over the Christmas New Year period in 2013. They were a little bit light on for staff and they simply needed someone to help keep the coverage of what was still pretty dramatic events at the time. This four-fingered salute it is a symbol of the anti coup Alliance. By turning out on the streets today in such large numbers, these protesters are making it very clear just how determined they are to continue to defy the fire government. We now need to see whether the government is prepared to carry out mass arrests. Egypt had gone through the Arab Spring. The Islamist government under Mohammed Morsi had been thrown out in an uprising in the middle of 2013. By the time we got there, there was an interim government that was trying to organise fresh elections. And so what we were trying to do was simply keep track of of the unfolding events. Part of that of course involved speaking to the opposition and the opposition at the time was the Muslim Brotherhood. Of course the Brotherhood had been accused of terrorism but it hadn't been formally banned at the time and so we felt it was only right and proper as responsible journalists to get their views on some of the political changes that were taking place. Pretty pedestrian journalism, certainly nothing that we thought would upset the authorities and so I had no idea that there was any problems at all. I was getting dressed for dinner when there was a knock on the door. I opened up the door and in flooded about five, six, seven guys. I don't really remember how many there were. They were all plain clothed. It became pretty clear that this wasn't just a bunch of thugs. These were people with official sanction. We weren't told what the charges were or what the case was. We were simply told that we were under arrest and we had to go for, for interrogation. I thought that um, it was a mistake. We'd done nothing wrong. Um, we'd be maybe held in question for a few hours, perhaps overnight. There may be a few phone calls and so on, but I thought that it'd be over pretty quickly. It took a little while before we started to understand this was gonna take quite some time. Me and Mohammed Fahmy were held in a police cell that was pretty small, about 11 guys in that cell. The only way you could possibly sleep in a space that tiny was to try and organize yourselves very, very carefully. There were always at least a couple of guys who had to stand or sit um, upright. You couldn't all sleep at the same time in that space. There was always someone's pulse that you could feel. Um, we were so tightly packed together. You had to sleep with someone's foot for a pillow and your foot you know, tucked into someone else's armpit. then you get so exhausted under those circumstances that at some point sleep just takes over and, and, and you, you you nod off because you can't possibly survive any other way. After we went from the police cells, we moved, I was moved into a, um, a solitary confinement, into a, a slightly larger cell. It was a cell that had, obviously, a bed and a sink and a toilet. but. It was pretty isolating. There was a tiny window fairly high up, which you couldn't see out of. There was a little bit of daylight that would filter through, but no direct sunlight. And I remember I was stuck in there for for about 10 days. I was taken out for interrogation from time to time, but otherwise I was on my own. And you realize then that in those circumstances that the greatest danger is, is your own mind. It's your own head that will play games with you. It's your own head that will will think you into a pit, unless you're very, very careful. And so what you've got to do in that, when you're faced by that... ..that enormous blob of formless time is that you've got to put structure into that time. You've got to be disciplined about keeping fit. You've got to be disciplined about keeping mentally stable. You've got to be f- disciplined about keeping mentally active. And so I was very careful to try and build in a structure into the day, time when you'd exercise, times when I'd meditate, times when I'd, I'd play mind games, memory games, and so on. Otherwise, you'd just go mad. I was allowed out from solitary um, for a period of exercise with my neighbors. One of my cellmates, Adler Abdel Fanta, who is a remarkable character, and he said to me that, look, you need to be thinking about this, not in terms of days or weeks, but in terms of months, because this is going to take some time. But even then, I don't think I fully understood just how long it would take or just how serious it was. And while I was in solitary at Lumen, Fami and Beher were in, in Scorpion prison alongside some jihadis. Um, and that was a pretty intense experience for those guys. We were all moved into the same cell together at a prison called mulhaq al Mazar family Behar and I shared a cell and that was that was better we could you know keep an eye on each other three of us 23 hours a day in a, in, in a fairly con- very very confined space um, three three bunks um, crammed together um, in a, a, a very tiny room we had a tiny um, you know, toilet and a sink and a little space to wash, but you know, no space to do any real exercise to, to move around. We had no access to reading material or writing material. The authorities wouldn't even allow us watches. So the only way we had of keeping track of time was the daily call to prayer. That was it. There was no other way of knowing what what time it was. And that was very, very tough. That was that was very challenging. Being locked up for twenty-three hours a day in a box with three other guys in a very, very confined space also brings its own challenges. But we were at least able to to find a way of of managing that and and supporting one another. After a while, the authorities relinquished and allowed us to have watches and books and some reading material, but it was still very, very tough in that space. After lockdown every evening, at five o'clock, the guards would knock down the block and they would leave. And so we started what we called the Mull Hunt Radio Show. Everyone would pull the beds to the doors and they'd stand on the end of the beds and shout through the bars at everybody else. And we could actually hear each other quite well. We would conduct a radio program beginning with the news. There would always be someone who had a visit and they would bring in news from the outside. And so we would share the news, whether it was gossip or hard news or whatever. So we'd be able to keep each other informed that way. And then we'd have discussions and theological debates and political discussions and so on. We'd sometimes conduct interviews with these guys because most of our neighbors in that particular prison were very senior leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood. We had Muhammad Badir to our left. He was the supreme guide of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Hisham Andir was the prime minister. He was upstairs and to the right. And one of the cells across the way was Saeed Qatatni, who was the Muslim Brotherhood's parliamentary speaker. And so we had some really interesting characters um, who were fascinating to, to, to talk to. And they had a lot of interesting stuff. And of course, as journalists, You want to know what these guys have to say, what they think, what what their experience was. It was fascinating. A really important way for us to keep our sanity, but also for those guys as well, because it it gave you some formal, structured way of, of communicating with each other. We first of all never thought that our case would go to trial. There was no evidence of any wrongdoing, because we hadn't done anything wrong. The questioning had focused very much about our supposed relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, but because we had no relationship, I didn't think that there was any reason for us to go to trial. When it finally went to trial, we thought that the judge would see just how ludicrous the charges were and how ridiculous the whole trial was and and throw the case out. And then, as it went on, it became quite clear that it wasn't going to be over, that we'd have to go the distance. But then we thought, well, (laughs) there's no evidence. The only obvious solution was to have the case chucked out. I remember just before the verdict, we forced ourselves to consider the possibility that the courts would, in fact, convict us. But then we thought, well, the only reasonable sentence you could give us was perhaps for time served, and maybe a token week or a month or so, just to be seen to be responding some way. When we heard the sentence, we're guilty, seven years in prison, honestly, it felt like we'd been king hit by Mike Tyson. Everyone talks about the uproar in the court at the time, Everyone says that the whole court just started, everyone started shouting and calling out. I don't remember any of that. I just remember silence, my ears, I I didn't hear a thing. Um, It felt like I'd been punched in the guts. I remember almost gasping for air at the time. It was just, it just made no sense to me. We got back to the cell I closed the door behind us and I remember just sinking to my knees and... I, 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 don't, I don't mind admitting that I burst into tears at that point. Um, I, I just... It was, I, I, I really struggled to conceive of, of spending seven years behind bars. We were found guilty of aiding a terrorist organisation of being members of a terrorist organisation, in my case of financing a terrorist organisation, of broadcasting false news to undermine national security, of um, basically acting as propagandists for a terrorist organisation. There was not a single piece of evidence to confirm any of those charges. We had a lot of support. We had a visit from my brother the day after my brothers, Mike and Andrew, both were, were in court for the verdict. I spoke to them about it, and I remember thinking that, you know, we, 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 this is not, we, can't, we, we can't possibly spend seven years in prison. I didn't know how long it would take. We knew it would take a long time to, to resolve it, but we also knew that we had a lot of support from our colleagues, from diplomats, from politicians, from some of the world's most powerful leaders. And so we always felt after the initial shock that this would be over at some point we wouldn't go the distance but we just had no idea what sort of distance we would have to go after we were convicted we were only allowed one visit every two weeks Um, those are the prison rules and my my family came through um, and saw and saw us they they were amazing. Um, my family basically tag-teamed it in Cairo so that there was always someone there in Cairo who was able to not just come and visit us, but also keep in touch with any politicians, with diplomats, with our lawyers and so on, to make sure that there was a presence in Egypt to support to support me and family and Beha. They brought in messages from supporters. Um, they made us understand that we hadn't been forgotten, that people were still fighting to support us, uh, still fighting to get us out of prison. The lowest moment for us, for me at least, I think was undoubtedly the period around the time that we were originally convicted. Um, That was very, very tough indeed. We had to really confront some very hard realities about the situation that we were in. We, Up until that point, we'd always believed that things would be resolved fairly quickly. After that, we, we started thinking in terms of years, up to seven years, and that was a very, very difficult thing to have to face. Um, the third prison after we were convicted, in fact, was probably the the most not the relaxed, to say it's relaxed is perhaps a little bit of an overstatement. But we were in a communal cell with about a dozen guys and there was a bit more space for us to move around. But we were still kept in fairly restrictive conditions. We had a, a, a bunk bed and we had a little bit of space to, to operate in and, and, and we, we kind of settled in for what we understood was going to be a much longer uh, a longer stretch in prison as we fought first to get our convictions Overturned and on appeal, and then go through the retrial. You know, it was it was easier. But as I said, make no mistake, prison is never a cakewalk at the best of times. Um, And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go through that. The hardest thing to deal with is your own mind, the way that your own mind can play tricks on you, can play games on you, can start to eat yourself up. Let's face it, that's what prison is for. It's intended to really mess with your head. If you're not disciplined about it, if you're not very, very careful, then it's easy to slip into some very, very dark depression. Very dark places indeed. I started to realise that and, and, and it was constant battle to make sure, not that you suppress that, but that you recognised for what it was and allowed yourself to have those sort of dark feelings but then made sure that you let them go. It's that struggle with your own your own mind that, that is always, I think, going to be the, the hardest part of it. We started getting letters very early on, but they would only allow me one or two letters a month. Once we were convicted, then the authorities allowed a little bit more in. Sometimes they were just simple one-line statements of support, of solidarity. Other times they were quite meditative missives about the significance of our struggle and what it meant to people. Other times they were just very gossipy accounts of normal life, which were wonderful. It was a chance to escape into someone else's life and to recognize that actually there was a, a real world that was that was going on out there, and that was that was fantastic. And it wasn't just in the dozens or, or the hundreds. I mean, there were thousands of these letters that came through. Nobody outside of Egypt really believed the allegations against us. Everybody who knew and understood what we were going through empathised with our situation and felt quite outraged by it, and they were prepared to take to social media to express that outrage. We. Understood there was a big social media campaign. We, we had not a tiniest conception of just how massive it really was. The Free AJ staff hashtags got three billion impressions. I didn't really understand just how massive the numbers were until I heard that single statistic. It put a lot of pressure on the politicians and diplomats who are in turn talking to Egypt and saying, listen, we can't. Normalise our relationship with you because of this massive weight of public anger with what's going on. It certainly, I think, made it easier for our political and diplomatic representatives to argue our case. We had moved past the obvious political opportunities for the President to give us a pardon. That was January 25th, the anniversary of the original January 25th revolution. And we were still in prison, we still hadn't had any new court appointed. And so I thought that we're in uncharted waters. There was no, no target for us, there was no timeline, there was no, nothing that we could particularly aim for. And I, real, I felt at the time that we needed to do something to increase the pressure, to step up the campaign. We had a long corridor, about 25, 30 meters long, and I would run up and down that corridor for the exercise about an hour a day and so I went out for a run that morning I was contemplating talking to my brother I was going to tell him that we need to think very hard about new strategies to get out of prison it was while I was in the middle of that run that one of the guards called me over and said the boss needs to speak to you And so I went to see him and he said look got some news, pack your stuff, you're going. I said, what do you you mean I'm going? Moving prisons or something? And he said, no, no. He said, "Um, the embassy's coming in half an hour, you're going home, pack your stuff, yella. (laughs) I thought, it was completely surreal. You know, I, I had, as I said, I had no idea it was coming. I understood it intellectually that that's what I'd been told, but... In my heart, it really felt hard to actually believe it after we'd been through so many false starts and so many moments when we thought this thing would be over. I finally found out that I was being released literally half an hour before they actually kicked me out of the country, or kicked me out and sent me out of the cells at least. I had just enough time to say goodbye to my cellmates, and I was out the door, and they told me to change into civilian clothes, and then they put me in a prison van and drove me to the airport, and shook my hand and said, uh, you know, thanks for staying, so you know, nice having you, you know, see you later. I saw my brother at the airport, um, the ambassador, Ralph King. Um, they put me on a plane and we flew to Cyprus. The thing that I'd often thought about, the thing that to me was the epitome of freedom, was the sea to be able to see the sea to feel the sea to hear the sea and so the first thing we did was to go to the beach in Cyprus I rolled up my jeans and just waded into the water and just felt the sand beneath my toes and the waves against my legs that was absolutely wonderful But it was really only when I got off the plane in Brisbane um, about four days later to this absolutely extraordinary welcome from hundreds of people who'd turned up to the airport to welcome me home that I actually finally realized it was over. It feels absolutely awesome to be here with my family, with you guys. but of course this is all tempered and I'm going to say this a million times this is tempered by a real worry for my colleagues for Muhammad family for Behhem Muhammad if it's right for me to be free then it's right for all of us yeah, I know okay. the retrial began about a week and a half 10 days after I was released I was named as a defendant which was completely shocking to us we didn't really understand what had gone on because I'd been removed from Egypt under an executive order under an order of the president Um, and so it didn't really make a great deal of sense that the court should still consider me on trial I was then convicted in absentia and then the judge said that uh, I was absent without reason the court refused to acknowledge or failed to acknowledge the president's authority in Kicking me out of the country, which remains to this day something that I'm I'm quite puzzled by. But that's something we're still pushing for. We still hope and are asking President Sisi to extend pardons. After we were convicted again, my two colleagues, Behar and Fami, they were in in Egypt, of course, and they were sent back to prison. And after a few months of that, of fighting and arguing and and, lobbying for their release. I was actually on, um, uh, on a television program, we're recording a news panel quiz, a, a sort of comedy show. And the whole thing was being filmed in front of a live studio audience, and at the end of it all, one of the producers comes over with a mobile phone and says, Look, I've, I've got something for you, have a look at this. And I, I, I looked at it, and it said that, um, that Fami, a pardon had been given for, for Muhammad Fami. I was trying to process this, trying to figure out what it, what it all meant because, you know, there I was with, with just a single tweet, with no, nothing official, no confirmation from anything. Just as I was trying to figure out what to say about it, uh, the, the, the uh, show's host uh, was standing over my shoulder and he read the tweet out, and of course everybody starts applauding, and, and so I had to respond. What's happening? Oh! Oh, my God. James has got a top score in Angry Birds. <laughs> Just had some late breaking news here after the win
1: that uh, Mohammed Fahmy has been pardoned in Egypt.
0: And of course, you you want you want to feel joy at this, but you don't want to get have your hopes lifted and dashed again just on the strength of a rumor that might ultimately turn out to be false. If if he's got a pardon, it means, and God, I hope it means that the batter is out to because it's hard to imagine. I'm sorry, I'm feeling really No, imaginary. no, no, exactly, right. no. I mean, we've been fighting fighting for the past eight months for this and I mean I Christ, I'm sorry. Let's hope it's let's hope it is for both of them. Oh, okay. um, yeah. That response has now gone viral. It uh, I don't know, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people have seen that. It was it was really quite extraordinary. I don't know if our convictions will be quashed. President Sisi has said that if he'd been in power when we were first arrested, our case would never have gone to trial, and he's also said that he would consider pardons for all of us. We are just hoping that he will consider them and and consider them favorably. It's in in the president's power. That would send a very strong message, not just to other journalists in Egypt, but also to to, uh, the rest of the world that Egypt is serious about press freedom. I haven't slept in my own bed for, for almost two years now. I've been living out of a suitcase, and um, I really, really am looking forward to, to getting back into my own, my own house again. In a lot of ways, I feel quite privileged to have been in this position. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go through it again, but at the same time, I've learned something quite fundamental about myself, and that is that I can put up with a lot more than I ever, ever, ever dreamed possible and that's a really powerful thing
1: that was journalist Peter Grester telling his story it's now over a year since he was freed Peter says that for a long time he was waiting for life after prison to get back to normal but realized after a while that that wasn't going to happen so he's using his experience to speak out And to highlight the worrying and growing trend of media workers around the world who are being punished for their work. Amnesty will always defend free speech and the rights of journalists around the world. Find out what you can do at amnesty.org.uk forward slash free speech. I'm Anna Bacciarelli. Thanks for listening to In Their Own Words, a podcast from Amnesty International. Don't forget to subscribe for more stories of human rights heroes in their own words.